Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Angel of Words podcast, where your stories are heard. I am your host, Angel of Words. And before we get started, don't forget to click on that notification bell on YouTube. Like, follow, comment, share these messages. It's important. You could also find this on video in Spotify as well. So if you're a Spotify person, the video and audio is there. And if you're just looking for the audio, Audio, it's available on all podcast platforms. Now, folks, if you want to start your own podcast and you have inquiries into what type of equipment you should purchase, I have links in the description that can help you get started along your way. And if you want to reach out to us over here at the Angel of Words Entertainment family, all you have to do is uh, hit us up on social media at Angel of Words ENT or go to the website www.aowent.com. The podcast is sponsored by OTW Threads, Be Out of This World, and AttitudeOn10.com, your place to start trying to get over your trauma and build resilience. Now on deck. On the Angel of Words podcast, we have a special guest from Mental Health Awareness Month, Dr. Roderick Logan, Director of Organizational Programs at the Arizona Trauma Institute. Hello, Dr. Roderick Logan. Thank you for joining us today on Angel of Words podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Of course, of course, sir. It's Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, 40 years of experience, sir, you have in this field from what I read on the Arizona Trauma Institute website. Uh, what's, you know, how did you develop this passion for psychology? I want to start off with that first and foremost. Well, um, as I sometimes say, I didn't get here on a straight linear pathway. My path has been very serpentine, and I often describe it also as uh, walking through doors of opportunities. Sometimes I walk through the door and uh, it's slammed in my face and I get a sore nose. Other times (laughs) I walk through the door and it opens up to another door and another door. And that's been pretty much the story of my whole life. It was never my intention to to go into psychology or to mental health practices. Um, I imagine myself being a photographer or a film producer in Hollywood. And while I have dabbled in those things, they did not come to fruition, but I've had a lot of fun dabbling. (laughs) And uh, uh, so there was one intention, there was one dream, but uh, I've had lots of dreams, but um, I had an early experience in 1980. I was still, I was in Fresno, California, working on an undergrad degree and found myself in a part-time job working with the California Youth Authority. And I was assigned to a maximum security unit for juveniles. And just that idea, a maximum security unit for juveniles, seemed um, perplexing to me because juveniles are children. And I was trying to imagine what, what would be the case for a child 
to require maximum security lockup. Wow. And uh, I was assigned to a dormitory of 50 young men, all under the age of 18, who were incarcerated or in lockup for capital crimes. And what really grabbed my attention was sitting on the side of a bunk bed of a nine-year-old boy who was very petite in size, red hair, freckled face, soft voice. And he was in there because he had stabbed his mother eight times with a butcher knife. And I was contemplating what his world must have been like that would cause him to be so scared, so frightened that he would need to defend himself against his mother, the woman who gave him life with a butcher knife. And his file in the office was 18 inches thick. And I have, I've worked with, over the years, with others who were been in lockup, and I've seen their files, and their files did not come anywhere close to being as thick, as it were, of reports and assessments and, and other information that would be 18 inches thick. That grabbed my attention. I was very young, working on an undergrad degree, and I've never been able to shake that. That has been a narrative that has been with me the whole time. And uh, it, it has played a big role in where I'm at today and with what I'm doing today. Wow. That, that is, uh, you know, I, I've, you know I, I did work at a Rikers Island myself uh yes. you know community counseling things of that nature giving people health insurance in the in the uh jail system and you know i've also seen some stories like that so i could imagine how that helps shape you know pave the way to, for things that you're doing right now it's actually one of the things that inspired me to uh start angel awards entertainment so wow that i mean it, it gets really deep now dr uh logan you, you know you like you said these things happen now you from what I would on what from what I read on their website, human suffering is not a fate to be born, but a mission to overcome. That seems to be something that you focus on. Like, could you elaborate a little bit on that for the audience? Sure. Um, we could make the statement, and it would be true, that everyone suffers. Everyone has experienced. Um, if not a, a particular trauma, they've experienced toxic stress. They've experienced an overwhelming situation or experience, or maybe they've been exposed to something that was very difficult. And there's suffering that comes with that. So that's generally true about every person or maybe most every person. But uh, for folks who have, been born in conditions like poverty, limited access to care, limited access to economic security, um, uh, in, in a violent field environment or neighborhood, perhaps individuals who were are experiencing intergenerational trauma, they're not the first generation to, to have these difficulties, these challenges. And there's particular uh, uh, people groups like Native Americans, um, Black Americans, Asian Americans, who have often are 
experiencing intergenerational trauma because of what had happened to their grandparents or ancestors before that, their parents, and now them. And suffering for a lot of those folks has become a way of life. It's as common for them to suffer as it is for other people to have a night, a good night's rest, wake up to um, a wonderful breakfast. And what I've come to understand is that suffering is something that we can deal with. There's a difference between suffering and being in pain. And even when we look at it from a neurological point of view and under a microscope, and we understand our body's nervous system, there are things called pain gates in our nervous system. And and there are things that we might feel pain, but that's different than those who suffer. And there is a way to reduce the suffering while we deal with the pain. There is a way to rise and be resilient and experience uh, a thriving life or to experience our life getting better, even though folks would still be struggling with poverty or economic security or access to health care or being uh, respected and appreciated and, and embraced in their community. There is a way to face adversity and get better. And we call that resiliency. Resiliency is oftentimes in the mainstream conversation. Um, The the conversation seems to often revolve around that resiliency is about dealing with the past trauma or being able to let go of what someone might be uh, hanging on to. But resiliency is not just about processing the past experiences and exposures. It's about a readiness for the next difficulty. Because there's always another difficulty. There's always another challenge. And in some cases, and in some people's lives, there's always going to be another traumatic experience because of their condition, their situation. You think about people who were to live in third world countries, who folks living right now in the Ukraine um resiliency cannot be for them just about processing what happened yesterday or last week in the bomb that blew up their house or took out a loved one um but resiliency is a hardiness it's a readiness so that the next time i face a difficult situation i'm less impacted I'm less overwhelmed, and my momentum of moving forward in my life is less negatively impacted. And so that's what I've committed my life to, is to helping people to build towards resiliency. And that's a phrase that I hang on to a lot. Um, Resiliency is not a plateau. It's not a target that we reach and then we celebrate across the finish line. I'm here. I got it. Resilience, resiliency is something that we are always building towards. It's a fluid situation. It is. It is. Well, Dr. Logan, you know, I've, something's happened and, you know, there's been things happening uh, in my, you know, land, Puerto Rico, you know what I mean, that I love so dearly. 
Um, there's been a lot of feminicide. I've read some reports of the last one that was committed out there of um, the fact that the father of the person who committed the atrocity was also a physical abuser towards his mom. And you just finished mentioning something very important that you think this could be a generational trauma that we don't even know ourselves It's, it's that it, that's coming. Epigenetic, I guess, would be a word that comes to mind. So you think that's true, and could you, I mean, first of all, do you think that's true? Second of all, could if you do think it's true or don't think it's true, uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Sure. First of all, we know from neurology and our biology that when we have painful, difficult circumstances in early childhood, that this is not just a psychological or emotional issue. It is first a physiological issue because, and this is, this is why I, I often say to folks, despite what some of the experts say, and I respect many of those experts, despite what they represent resiliency to be, to be like a bouncing back, resiliency is not bouncing back for most people. Because trauma changes people, particularly when the trauma, the adversity happens in early childhood, when the body and the brain is in its earliest stages of development. And so the human body and the brain is designed to develop in a certain pathway based upon its nurture or the lack of nurture, the support or the lack of support. And when a, an infant, a young child, uh, when children experience neglect, when they experience abuse, it changes how their brain is hardwired. And if those hardwirings, which create neural pathways, and those neural pathways dictate how our body is going to behave and how it's going to emote, our behaviors and our emotions are less from our intentionality. And they're more reflective of programming. And the programming are those neural networks that were formed in early childhood. And yes, the brain is plastic or neuroplasticity, which refers to I can change the wiring of my brain. But that requires intentional effort and it requires support. So when an individual is non-intentional, and maybe they're not intentional because they don't want to, or they're not intentional because they don't know how. Or maybe it's because they don't have the supports to help them make those intentional changes. So when these early adversities happen and create these networks, and these networks are based on how we're going to survive. So it's not uncommon that the behavior reflective of someone who's in survival mode is aggressive or avoidant. And so we have people who cower and pull away and isolate. We have other people who are aggressive and their aggression takes on a, a, a continuum of that can often lead to violence and hurting others. And these are patterns that were developed in early childhood. And on one hand, they can be changed, but when they're not, because that kind of change requires, again, a great energy of intentionality and supports. And when that's not there, then that person, as they become an adult, are going to follow the programming from early childhood experiences. And that often is, again, 
being aggressive with others and often those who are close to them, family, neighbors, the neighborhood, the community, or avoidant and isolating. And when that goes unchecked, because the person is of a particular people group that's marginalized and, and overlooked, not respected in the, a larger community, then that generational trauma continues generation after generation after generation. Um, just as one quick example, and it's, and it's a hot topic. It really is. It is. Um, back in the very early years of this country, when Caucasians from Europe were moving here and, and settling and, and moving westward, um, we were displacing Native Americans. We were uh, fighting them, displacing them, reserving them to reservations. But that's not all we did. We separated the children from their families, from their parents. And we put these children in, in, in orphanages and in day schools. And they got, uh, they, were, they, were, they were educated according to the Caucasian European model. And they were not allowed to sing their native songs or do the native dances or speak the native language. They were assimilated into the Caucasian culture. Meanwhile, they're growing up away from their parents. And what we have over this over the years, we've created, we've been a participant in um, redesigning, if you will, the Native American culture. And today, it's not unusual on many of the reservations that the, the elders don't know the language. And not just the young people uh, that's in, you know, in the teens and young 20s, that's true there too. But even folks in their 40s, 30s and 40s and 50s are, are not as well acquainted with their culture and in one particular tribe, tribal nation here in Arizona, uh, the the average lifespan is forty two. Wow, that's really low. My God, it is, it is. So the trauma, this generational trauma, is not just in terms of how we treat one another, behaviors and emotions and that sort of thing, but it also speaks to to um, negative health outcomes, and even, even having a shorter lifespan than a person would have otherwise. And there's a tremendous amount of research in this area, tremendous amount of research. The, if I, I could spend uh, hours just walking folks through the literature and the research on this. Wow. I, Dr. Logan, I want to talk about toxic stress because it's important. It's at home. Uh, and, you know, my question is, can you be experiencing toxic stress and not even know you are? It's very possible. It, 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 in fact, that's often the issue is folks are experiencing stress levels um, in ways that they're not acknowledging or they're aware of because they've not been self-aware. We do not live in a culture or a society that encourages people to be self-aware. 
being um, being selfish or self-centered is not self-awareness. You know, there's uh, a lot of folks talk about uh, uh, this social media culture and and how prone so many people are, particularly younger people, to taking selfies of themselves with their with their smartphone. Uh, that's not self awareness, um, and and so selfishness, self centeredness, and self consciousness. That's not self awareness. Self awareness is when I have a active, intentional consciousness of my body. It's a it's a somatic experience, and I recognize when my body is experiencing arousal because. And just think about that being conscious of my body experiencing arousal where do most people think that goes they they often think we're talking about something yeah. sexual exactly and and, and 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 sexual arousal is a part of body arousal biologically speaking that's true but um if i for example if while i'm visiting with you in this podcast if i start talking really fast it's likely that I'm experiencing body arousal because in my life, in my self-awareness, I know that when my body arousal comes up and specifically what we're talking about when we say body arousal, we're talking about muscle tension because the more tense my muscles are, the longer my muscles are tense, the energy levels in my body are rising. And that begins to affect things like saliva flow. My mouth starts getting drier. Uh, my hearing will be impacted because the first muscle to constrict is the tympany muscle in the middle of the ear. It puts pressure on the optic nerve. It puts pressure inside the head um, in turn, and it affects hearing, but it also affects equilibrium. So when the body starts manifesting these symptoms, that's a rising level of stress. Well, that's called acute stress. So there's really three levels of stress. There's beneficial stress. And that's what we experience when we set the alarm clock and we want to wake up on time. Or I wanted to make sure that I wasn't late to this podcast. So I set a reminder on my phone to because I often get busy doing one thing and I lose track of time. So I intentionally stressed my body. That's beneficial stress. If I was to do a hike or work out in the gym, that's beneficial stress. If I'm driving down the road and high on the highway and someone cuts me off in traffic, someone driving unsafe, in that moment, I move from beneficial stress to acute stress. Body arousals are going to go up and I'm glad it does because it causes me without having to think about it to quickly turn the steering wheel, put my foot on the brake and avoid the accident. That's acute stress. So now to your question about toxic stress. Toxic stress is when someone has, their body has reached such an intensity of, of muscle tension and they're in acute stress and they're not able to return back to beneficial stress. It's because those stress hormones that's creating the muscle tension, instead of being beneficial to save life, it's now eroding life. When a person has an abundance of stress hormones in their blood system, it begins to eat away at the proteins and the cells. And now it's life-threatening. Wow. 
Now, Dr. Logan, you also talk about something that that was uh, really interesting to me. Uh, you're an advocate for fighting ignorance of apathy. Uh, what does that mean and why? Ignorance and apathy. Yeah. Um, in, in the world of counseling, um, counselors and therapists and, and coaches are taught, don't ever ask a question that you don't want to know the answer to. Okay. And, <laughs> and that's, that's an important practice. That's an important idea. But the point being is that some folks are not practicing self-awareness. Some people are not asking questions and they're not inquiring because they don't want to know. They're afraid to know. Because once you and I know, we're now responsible for what we know. And so it's sort of like turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to someone's cries. I don't want to know. And, and so that, that's the ignorance part, which leads then to apathy. And that's the central issue, as I understand it. it it's, uh, it's not that the people don't know who want to know. It's that the people who could know are choosing not to know. And that leads then to apathy. And, uh, and when, when we're not, we're designed as human beings to be relational. And if all I do is be relational with people who are the same as me, um, that, will, that will promote my apathy. One of the, one of the most uh, enlightening things I've ever done was to travel to places and other parts of the world that are very different from the world I grew up in. And, and sometimes that's been here in, in the United States and sometimes it's been outside the United States. But when I have walked the streets, I've sat in the houses and I've conversed with the people who are nothing like me. I not only know, I don't just know intellectually, I know emotionally and experientially. And that awakens me and motivates me as a compassionate human being to move out of a state of apathy to a state of action and response. Wow. Wow. That makes, I love it. Uh, the podcast folks is sponsored by OTW threads, reminding you to be out of this world and uh, attitude on 10, uh, another place where you can start trying to help build your, uh, resilience and overcome trauma. Now, Dr. Logan, um, I have my next question is, have you ever experienced compassion fatigue with a client? And uh, can you explain uh, what that is and how therapists can learn to deal with it? Sure. Compassion fatigue may be a new term that folks are just learning, but the idea of compassion fatigue has been studied and researched for several decades now. And uh, we used to refer to it as vicarious trauma. Hmm. Vicarious trauma was the difficulty that a person would experience as a caregiver when they were exposed to the trauma of someone else. So if we imagine um, someone who is a care provider or a service provider and they're working in a very impoverished community, um, say Calcutta, India, by example, 
and they're seeing um, the, the, the masses of folks who are starving and who do not have proper medical care and rampant diseases and unsanitary conditions. That can be very overwhelming. And I'm using that just as a hyperbole kind of an example. First of all, that's a real life situation that exists. But um, I'm, I'm using something that dramatic to make the point that when we are exposed to the trauma of others and we have this overwhelming feeling of helplessness, that's one of the symptoms of compassion fatigue. But as, as the research has gone forward with folks like Dr. Charles Figley and others and, and Dr. Eric Gentry, um, we find that compassion fatigue is actually a combination or a, a synergistic effect of three things. One, there's the individual's own history of trauma, because oftentimes caregivers and service providers, people working in community service organizations, whether they be paid or volunteered, are often there because of their own history of trauma. And it's created a, a compassion in them for other humans. So there's their history. So when I have a history of trauma and I'm providing care for someone else, it might be on occasions I will have experiences or exposures that will trigger my body to react based upon my own past painful learning. The second factor is that that secondary traumatic stress or that vicarious trauma when I'm exposed to the trauma narrative of others. And the third contributing factor to compassion fatigue is what we call burnout. And a lot of folks don't understand what burnout is. And the term gets used a lot, but it's often used in a way that's not congruent to what it really means. And, and we've come to understand so many, in, in so many ways that burnout is just, I'm working too hard. And that working hard does not create burnout. Burnout is a term that the mental health community has borrowed from the industrial revolution. Mm, okay. And originally, the term burnout existed to describe the environment or the workplace conditions that was not supportive for human beings. Improper ventilation, no supports for paid time off or vacation or sick leave, um, uh, Conditions where people were expected to keep their production high, but they had limited access to resources or tools and uh, often working seven days a week. And, and this, these were just uh, a lot of the conditions. And there was many more during the time of the Industrial Revolution. So that term burnout was originally coined to describe work conditions that were dehumanizing. So we have people experiencing burnout now um, in the recent uh, COVID-19 era. Not that's not recent, that's present. But during the time of quarantine and the days after quarantine, many medical uh, workers were had a lack of access or improper access to PPEs. And uh, yet they were expected to be on the job and do their job. And that kind of condition where I need to do my job, but I don't have everything I need to do my job, I'm not supported for that, is one of the factors that leads to burnout. Wow, so, that's interesting. 
the question is uh, that you ask is um, how do we work with folks who have compassion fatigue? And I take a salutogenic approach because it's not important that we diagnose someone and label the diagnosis as you are suffering with compassion fatigue. That's not really helpful. In a salutogenic approach, we identify the symptoms so that we can target self-care. In compassion fatigue, folks can overcome compassion fatigue and the symptoms of it by practicing self-care. But we're not going to practice self-care if we're not also practicing self-awareness with self-acceptance. Dr. Basil Vanderkoop, the author of the book, The Body Keeps a Score, uh, he says very simply, but I think very profoundly, uh, self-awareness or mindfulness is a really good idea unless you don't like yourself, <laughs> unless you're judging yourself. And so what he suggests is that if you're going to practice mindfulness or self-awareness, you need to bring with it self-compassion. So wow, as we become self-aware, self-compassionate, then when I recognize my needs and those symptoms of compassion fatigue helps us to recognize those needs that I have that I might be neglecting. When I start attending to my needs, I empower myself to meet my needs. Then I overcome the symptoms, but there's something else that happens. Not only am I overcoming those symptoms, I am more readied to continue giving and serving others. And I would imagine that leads to less stress. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we already know that stress is not bad necessarily. If you know, unless the body is stressed, it well, doesn't toxic grow. Stress, like you were discussing, but that's we don't want to be overly about. stressed. We don't Got want you. the stress to become distress. Got you. Got you. Makes perfect sense. Uh, Dr. Logan, I also want to discuss children because, you know, I see that in the urban communities, they're quick to give you medication. I've never been a fan of that. I feel like children have energy. You know, it's just what they do. You know what I mean? like, yes. So, I mean, can we discuss that and why you think the uh, mental health professionals jump quickly, in my opinion, obviously you may have a difference of opinion into, uh, you know, medicating the child? Because I feel that could be a little bit, you know, dangerous. I need to preface my comments with the fact to your audience uh, that I'm not a medical doctor. So because I'm not trained as a medical professional, I need to those my words need to be understood and interpreted in that light. I definitely, don't want to misrepresent. But here's what we know. Okay. Um, and this is not true about every part of the pharmacology world, uh, but this is true for many parts of it that the medicines that we prescribe for children and adults do not resolve the problem, does not heal the body. It masks the awareness of the problem. And, and so in a trauma-informed care world and in, in a neurobiology world, this is called mitigation. Mitigation is a behavior or an emotion or an action that a person takes to reduce cognitive awareness. Mm -hmm. 
It doesn't resolve the problem. An example would be if um, if I am outside and for whatever reason, my eyes are not constricting and I'm in bright sunlight uh, because when you're typically outside in bright sunlight, your pupils will constrict so that it limits the amount of light coming in. And if my, for whatever reason, if my eyes are not doing that, I can shade my eyes. I can put on sunglasses, but that doesn't that does not dim the light. It doesn't dim the sun. It just reduces my awareness and it makes it where I can maybe be a little bit more tolerating of being outside. But if that doesn't work, then I might just go inside in, inside a building um, for for people who can get sunburns. I'm one of those people. I'm, I'm as, you know, I, I, my people come from the Scott Irish part of the world. <laughs> I don't know what a tan is, but Beautiful I do know what a sunburn there, is. You know? Yeah. And, definitely. and when, and I've had in my lifetime, lots and lots of sunburns. And so I can, I can put on suntan lotion. I can, I can put on some ointment uh, to heal or, or it doesn't actually heal, but to soothe the sunburn, but it, it, all it does is mitigate. It just reduces my awareness. So that's what often happens with, with folks with medications. Um, it's not solving the problem. It's not, it's not a cure. It's reducing cognitive awareness. So, um, I'm going to put forth my opinion about something and there are going to be a host of people who disagree with me. Uh, and I, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm comfortable with people not seeing it my way, but I also know there's going to be a host of people who, who think this same way. And that is oftentimes the, the, the medication administered to children specifically, uh, is for, uh, other people's benefit and not the child's. Uh, if a child uh, is given medication that, that causes them to be calm, uh, it's it's essentially um, numbing much of their nervous system. And that is for the benefit of the adults around so that they're not bothered by the active behavior of a child who's uh, particularly stimulated because of some challenge. So how do you work with the adults? Do you work with these adults and, you know, teach them, you know, some tactics to try to, uh, you know, under make them understanding of what's happening around them? Well, one, I can't make anybody do anything, but well, I mean, well, uh, you your know, question speaks directly <laughs> right. to the point. Um, uh, I've when when I've done and one of the things that I provide uh, is a trauma coaching service. Uh, for individuals. And I often get inquiries from people who want me to visit with their children. And my first response is, I would rather visit with you, the parent, the care provider. First of all, I don't want to circumvent the influence you have in your child's life, becoming their surrogate parent uh, that they have more trust in than you. I don't want that to happen. Second of all, uh, most children don't need therapy. Most children don't need a uh, a therapeutic intervention. What most children need is a stable, supporting, nurturing, caring adult in their life who can consistently offer non-judgment, non-shaming, uh, compassion, and love. Wow. Children are still learning. 
And whether they be three years old, seven years old, 11 years old, 15 years old, children are still learning and they need teachers in their life. They need folks who who don't just teach them information, but they will demonstrate. They will say, I invite you to come along with me and let's do this together. Children need adults in their life who will provide them shared experiences. Children need secure attachments. They need adults in their life who will play with them. They need adults in their life who will create a safe holding environment. So when the child is scared and overwhelmed and they act in a certain way, they cry, they get angry, they throw something. This caring adult will create a, an emotional environment that it's safe to work through your emotions. And they need that far more than they need medication. Now, there is a place for medication. And again, I'm not a medical doctor, so but I do allow that there are times that medication is effective, but not before we know this child's neurological history. Now, are there any uh, analogies or any tactics that you would tell a parent right now? Maybe one that comes off the top of your head to help them, you know, with, with, with the situation we just finished discussing. Trauma-informed care always begins with the individual. So before a parent can support and care for a child who's dysregulated, a child who's having a meltdown, a child who is scared and overwhelmed, a child who is struggling, before that caring adult can help that child, that adult needs to help themselves. One way we describe the differences in the human body and brain um, is we borrow from the Marvel Comics character, Hulk. So we know that there's Bruce Banner and Hulk. Those are not two different people. Those are two manifestations of the same person. Bruce Banner is intelligent and articulate. Hulk is not. Um, Bruce Banner is compassionate and can express that compassion. Hulk is not. So how is it that this one person can either be Banner or Hulk? That's because Bruce Banner feels safe. But when Bruce Banner gets overwhelmed, Bruce Banner becomes Hulk. And Hulk can only be one way, angry, loud, aggressive. Except if we understand the storyline from Marvel Comics, uh, there's one person in Hulk's life that whenever Hulk manifests, This person speaks softly, gentle touch, and Hulk returns to Bruce Banner. And in the storyline of Marvel Comics, that's the girlfriend. Yes. And meaning that there's a person who is consistently not judgmental to how Hulk behaves, but understands the core of Hulk is still Bruce Banner, but it's just not accessible in that moment. But a calmness. A slow approach, slower speech, lower tone, kinder gesture will help feel, help Hulk feel safer. And when Hulk feels safe, Hulk returns to Bruce Banner. That's what we need parents to do. We need parents to be so regulated, so much in their Bruce Banner brain, that no matter how their child behaves, their approach is still calm, non-judgmental, non-shaming, supportive with lots of empathy and understanding to lead their child from Hulk to their Bruce Banner. Because once a child is back to Bruce Banner, now we can instruct them 
now we can we can give them some correction where correction is necessary. But what happens if we confront the behavior of Hulk? Gets bigger. Hulk becomes yeah, more hulkish. Yeah, yeah. So the whole complete disaster becomes everything becomes terrible, you know. <laughs> so we have from, yeah. and, and I I I have to be careful here because I don't want to malign anyone, but there was a popular book published in the 90s. And its opening sentence in the first chapter has become very popular and it's morphed. And that sentence said, it's not about you. And and oftentimes we say things like it's not about you because maybe we're trying to get people to pay attention to be a benefit to other people. And that's fine. Except that phrase, it's not about you, has now become code for shut up, don't ask questions, go along, get along. Here's what we know about becoming a person who's trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive and how they're parenting children or how they're caring for others. It is about you. It has to be about you. A child cannot outregulate the adult that's in the room. Wow. That's a deep statement. Now, Dr. Logan, I mean, in in the urban communities where I grew up, there was a lot of hulks having children together. That's, you know, like, <laughs> and no, and, you know, and no great professionals such as yourself anywhere around, or, you know, when adults also in their own hulk phases. I mean, from what you're telling me, you know, there's a lot of hulk. Hulkamaniacs, if you will. Well, there are, uh, because uh, we live in a culture, in a society that likes people being in the Hulk brain. I mean, we don't like it when it comes down to road rage or someone, you know, taking a gun and starting shooting a lot of people. We don't like it then. Uh, But if someone is in marketing and they've got a product to sell, they love people being Hulk brain because people in Hulk brain spend more money than those who are in Bruce Banner brain. Because Bruce Banner brain thinks before they yeah. act. They think before they spend. They evaluate, but Hulk doesn't think. Hulk doesn't evaluate because those capacities are offline. Hulk is reactive. Wow. And so we like it when people are reactive. We, we're, we're able to manipulate them. We like it when it comes time for elections for people to be in Hulk brain because they're going to vote emotionally rather than vote intellectually. Wow. Wow. Well, right now, folks, we're talking to uh, one of the best, Dr. Roderick Logan here. The podcast is sponsored by OTW Threads, Be Out of This World, and also AttitudeOn10.com, your place to uh, start trying to get over trauma. Now, Doc, I want to talk about the COVID-19 situation a little bit because there's been a lot of brain fog There's there, uh, from, from what I've been reading from reports from different news sources, such as the New York Times. And, you know, such as some review journals here, Harvard's, uh, you know, and things of that nature. Now, uh, there's a lot of stress that has been caused and, and people now getting into the workforce and trying to, you know, lead relatively normal lives. And, and now it's like everything has changed. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, COVID-19 uh, surprised most people. We didn't see it coming. Um, I remember uh, I was relocating uh, the house where my wife and I live, and we moved our furniture in on March 1st of 2020. 
And oh, wow. one week later on March 8th, we were we were told to go into quarantine and, and our whole city and everyone around us was in lockdown. And I've never been through that before in my life. I've heard about it in other places regionally, but I had never heard of a or experienced a global pandemic with a global lockdown. So this was a first experience for me, first experience for most people. And it's when you and I have first experiences, and in this context, first experiences that are particularly threatening. And with that comes a, an increase of ambiguity. The future has always been unknown. But we make our plans. And generally, for a lot of folks, their plans are able to work through with minimal interruptions. But here's what we know. When ambiguity increases, when the future is less known or less knowable, less uncertain, that, that feels threatening. Now, it not, it's not necessarily threatening because we don't know. It's an unknown. So we can't specify the threat, but we perceive it as a threat. And that's all that's needed. We don't need real threat to have anxiety. We only need to have the perception of threat. And our body will react as if it's the very real thing. And for a lot of folks, a lot of folks, this has been particularly difficult because they are, uh, their perceptions uh, are not, they're not able, they haven't been able to find a way to augment their perception. They're still perceiving threat. Now, little by little, some folks have been able to relax and calm because they've modified their perceptions or what we call their perceptions have matured. It's a maturation. But some folks, they're hanging on with a white knuckle grip to the future is unsafe. The future is a threat. And that white knuckle grip is keeping them stalled and ineffective. And that's been generally true for all of human history. What we know and what we believe, the more we hang on to it, the less we grow. Because growth comes from change. Change requires not giving up what I know, but relaxing my grip. And what the tendency is for people who have had a history of trauma, who are experiencing presently toxic stress, the tendency is to hang on to what you know because we're in survival mode. And the more we hang on to it with that white knuckle grip, the less we're open to change, the more we're stalled and ineffective. So consequently, a lot of people are finding themselves staring at the proverbial wall, wondering, how am I going to get my breakthrough? And we don't get the breakthrough by learning how to punch through the wall. We get the breakthrough by just relaxing the grip. I'm reminded of something. Um, I'm not sure if you know the person, Corey Tinboom. Um, she Corey um, Tinboom. Corey Tinboom. Uh, she, uh, at the age of 14, uh, lived in Holland, and she and her family were arrested by Nazi officers during World War II and taken to a concentration camp, Ravensbrück. And her 
her mother had already died before that time, but her father and her sister would die in a concentration camp. Corey would live uh, to be liberated. And, and she lived a, a very long time. And, and she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And it was made into a motion picture, I believe, in the 70s or early 80s. But Corey said something that has always stuck with me. She said, hold loosely to everything. Otherwise, it hurts when God pries your fingers open. Wow. That is. <laughs> and the point being is that the reason why God would pry your fingers open is because God yeah. wants you to learn. He wants you to grow. He wants you to get better. And this is what's needed wow. for us to do that. I love that. I love that. Well, Dr. Logan, we've reached a point in the podcast uh, where it's time to play. And you know what? Looking at your backdrop, I'm going to have to change a little things up. You know what I mean? Because I'm a music aficionado myself. You know, and I play the drums a little bit over here on this side. So we'll, I'll, I'll throw one in there, a little curveball, if you don't mind. Music related, though. Now it's All time right. to play Five Words with Angel, folks. All right, folks, on Five Words with Angel, I'm going to give Dr. Logan a word phrase or a question, and he's going to give me the first thought that comes to his mind. Are you ready, Dr. Logan? I am as ready as I'm going to be. Uh, (laughs) Great. Now, the first word is Pakistan, because I read on the website that you spent some time out there. So Pakistan is your first word. I haven't physically been to Pakistan, but I've spent a great deal online with the leadership of the Trauma and Wellness Center in Karachi. The first thing that comes to my mind, I see the the faces of the leadership team uh, at the Trauma and Wellness Center. And these are competent and compassionate human beings who are endeavoring to bring a trauma awareness to Pakistan. And one of their challenges is language. It, obviously, they speak the language, but helping to introduce the concepts of trauma and wellness and resiliency to a culture that before now has had a very limited understanding of those ideas because it's very different for uh, their, their land and their culture. And this is a wonderful team that I've got great confidence in. Beautiful. The second word is marriage. I know, you know, on the website, it says as well, you know, <laughs> yes, it looks like you're a big uh, when I hear the, 42 years. Congratulations. You know? <laughs> yes. When, when I think of marriage, I think of the name Melody. That's the name of my wife. We've been married uh, more than 42 years. A little later this summer, we'll celebrate our 43rd anniversary. Nice. It's not been easy, uh, but we've done it together. We've stayed together. We work through it together. Sometimes it was in the trenches and other times it was on a, uh, a nice beach or up in the mountains, but uh, we've, we've stayed together and we work together and she's my best friend and my partner in life. Now I have a quick question actually, because, you know, I don't like to get into relationships, but my question is, you know, attraction, physical attraction at the beginning, is it very, very important or is it not? 
because I don't think it really is. If you, in my, you know, from what the way I look at it is like, it, it, if you're per, if you're a man that knows what you want, like I, I don't think that uh, being physically attracted to the person it should be the number one priority. I think you should be attracted to them, period. But I don't think it should be the staple of what you want. Well, the thing is, whether we're talking physical attraction or intellectual attraction, mm-hmm. uh, when especially this is true when we're very young, it's all emotional. Yes. It's all emotional. It's based upon a programming in our brain from earlier in our life of either what we imagine we would who we would have as a partner and, and, and live life with or what we imagine maybe someone being like our mother or like some other figure in our life. It's all emotional. And part of the journey is growing it to be something deeper. Emotion's important. Absolutely. We don't want to dismiss that or marginalize it, but uh, it, that alone is not sustainable. And so Melody and I have found a way, we found a way and we continue to find ways to deepen our connection beyond the emotional aspect. Beautiful. Great words. Thank you so much. The third one is uh, the man in a rowboat. Saw it on the <laughs> website as well, you know. <laughs> yes. So um, the Western view of time is described by Plato, the philosopher, a man or a woman. I forgive me for being uh, exclusive here. I didn't mean to Or non-gender binary. Uh, So the person standing on the shoreline of a river uh, is the descriptor that Plato gave of time. Um, The past is beyond you. It's, It's already moved in front of you and it's moved on. Uh, But the future is downstream and it's approaching you. Now, the moment you get into a rowboat, everything changes. Because now the future, because when you're in a rowboat, if you do it the way you're supposed to do it, you row backwards. Backwards, yeah. And so now the future is not in front of you. It's behind you. And what's what's the past is in front of you. And if you think about it, we we don't have a high skill in predicting the future. We can't see it, but we can see the past. Now, the idea that I'm proposing is that when we look at the past, because that's what we can do, is not to relive it and ruminate over it, but to learn from it. Sometimes the, the day passes so quickly through us and beyond us and, you know, it's over. It's so fast when today becomes yesterday that uh, there was a lot of value that we missed because it happened so fast. We were so otherwise occupied. So if we spend more time looking at the past, we'll find a lot of gems and wisdoms that, uh, that are ours to have. And if you think about it, a lot of our anxiety is because we're in that boat rowing backwards into the future and we keep doing this and we're getting a crick in our neck, which is akin <laughs> to we're trying to understand the future when we can't, we would have less anxiety if we would just row backwards into the future. I love that. I love that. All right. The fourth word is the mental health system currently constructed. What do you think? Current construction of the mental health system is pathological. 
it's fate it's focused on deficits um, whether you're going to a medical doctor a counselor uh, or some other care provider and you're filling out the intake form one of the first questions that you're going to have to answer is what's wrong or what's wrong with you that's because the pathological world is focused on deficits and the presenting problem and the pathological world uh, assumes that a person's problem is contained to a single system. But what we know, people who have trauma, toxic stress, or histories of adversity, um, their issues are not contained to a single system, which doesn't make pathological approaches totally inept, but it does greatly limit its effectiveness. So what I'm advocating for and others uh, of my colleagues at the Arizona Trauma Institute is what's called salutogenics, a term coined by Dr. Aaron Antonowski many years ago. And he is deceased, no longer with us, but his work has gone through an enormous peer review. So there's lots of information and research on this. Salutogenics is the study of wellness, where pathology is the study of disease. Well, here's what we know about how the brain works. Whatever you focus on, that's what grows. If you're focused on the deficit, that's going to grow. But if you focus on the assets, the strengths, the competencies and the capacities, that's what's going to grow. And so we we practice salutogenics. That's what we're advocating for. But uh, the mainstream world of the mental health world is still pathogenic. Now, the fifth word, I mean... That... Thank you so much for clearing that up for us. The fifth word is the rock band that changed your world, man, that changed your life. Who was it? You know, we all have one. Mine was Nirvana in the, in the 90s, you know. Um, number one would be uh, the Eagles, uh, Glenn the Fry Eagles. and Don Henley. But I also cannot leave out uh, Creedence Clearwater, John Fogarty. Uh, big influences. Uh, and, and Simon and Garfunkel. Oh my gracious. So there's, there's very, there's, those are three different variations of the rock genre. Uh, but all of three of those have had a profound impact on my life as a, a young person, a younger person than I am today. <laughs> Don't they make you wish you could write those songs yourself? They're so good, man. You kidding me? <laughs> Only in my dreams. The wonderful thing is I get to sing them when no one else is listening. <laughs> Well, Dr. Logan, I have two more points before I let you go. One, uh, the first one is imposter syndrome seems to be a hot button topic, especially amongst the millennial culture. Do you know anything about it and uh, thoughts on it, if you have any? Uh, I've, I've not spent a lot of time focusing or reflecting on that. I've heard the term uh, and I have a general understanding of what it might be referring to, but I've not spent a lot of time there. So I'm not sure that I have... Uh, much insight that I can bring in this conversation to imposter syndrome, um, other than maybe this one comment. Once again, the impact of trauma and toxic stress and histories of adversity robs people of identity. And a lot of behaviors and emotions, as I mentioned a moment ago, is a mitigating kind of behavior. It's reducing cognitive awareness which includes dissociating oneself from their authentic self. And um, one of the things that I do see, even in working with organizations, 
are some people who go to great lengths to not only look the part. And what I mean by that is taking on the fashions and the look of what they would believe would be generally accepted as mainstream in a particular organization. But they even go to speech schools to get rid of their accent. Wow. To to hide or mask their ass exit. And those are, again, mitigating uh, behaviors because a person has not found a comfort level in who they are. And one one additional point, if I may. Sure. Whether whoever we are and wherever we come from, when we embrace our authentic self. Vulnerability is a part of that. There is no such thing as perfection. It's a false concept. It's a fantasy. I'm not even sure why we have the word in our language because it doesn't represent anything that's real. And the, the truth is, what we call flawed is normal. Flaw, flawed is not abnormal, it's normal. And it's a part of our beauty, it's a part of our intelligence, it's a part of our uniquenesses, and it's a part of the diversity that I'm calling for all of us to embrace. But I cannot embrace your difference if I'm not first embracing my difference. And, you know, Dr. Logan, that's what I miss about rock music, you know, because I don't know if you ever watched the, you know, the Beatles documentaries and like they would leave mistakes on on the records. They were like, you know what, that's not perfect, but it sounds good. You know, and like the music now is like everything is so touched up, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, that's my biggest issue with music today is the fact that it's not authentic. There's all, every single f- thing that you think is a flaw is removed from the music. So we don't really know what the music sounded like authentically, you know, and that's Ditto. one of my issues. Absolutely. Well said. Now, uh, well, thank you, sir. Now, my last question to you is what would you tell people uh, who have family members that are dealing with trauma to help them? you know, to be a good teammate in the process of trying to overcome trauma. The vision uh, that we hold on to at the Arizona Trauma Institute, where I work and the team of folks that I'm with, our vision is a big audacious goal. And that is to elevate compassion from one human being to another. Um, It would be helpful if folks availed themselves to some training some books, some resources to help them understand not the psychology or the emotional aspects of trauma, but the physiology, because trauma first manifests in their physiology. But beyond that, let's learn how to be a human being. And let's not be afraid to be vulnerable as a human being and to be a, a true compassionate human being with other human beings. And let's stop trying to categorize and compartmentalize who's one kind of human versus another kind or who's better of a human than another, but just see that we're all equally a human being and approach one another on that level. That's That, I think, is a starting point. You don't have to spend any money to do that, but you will have to spend some intentionality. This will cost us something. And that cost is relaxing our grip of what we already know so that we can open up to something that's new and refreshing. 
Wow. Well, thank you for those profound thoughts, Doctor. Is there any lit literature you would like to plug or anything before we uh, let go here? Any books you recommend that people should go out there and take a gander at? Sure. Um, I, I don't have any of my own work. That's something that's in the making now, but it's it's not um, it's not available as of yet. Uh, but uh, there are some wonderful things available uh, if you're interested in some training. Uh, I would invite you to go to the Arizona Trauma Institute's website, aztrauma.org. There's a very extensive catalog, and you don't have to be a clinician or a therapist to, to benefit from these trainings. You can be a layperson. You can be a parent. Um, you can be who you are and benefit from this. Um, there are some notable works. Um, uh, Dr. Robert Roten, the president of Arizona Trauma Institute, along with Dr. Eric Gentry, uh, have authored a couple of works together, Trauma-Informed Care and uh, Compassionate Care. And those are some works uh, you can uh, find on our website there at aztrauma.org. Well, Dr. Roderick Logan, thank you for being on the Age of the Words podcast. Everyone, that was the rock star from the Arizona Trauma, uh, the Arizona Trauma Institute, Dr. Roderick Logan here on the Angel of Words podcast. Don't forget this podcast uh, is available on YouTube and all podcast platforms. Uh, just click the link in the notification bells on Spotify and every other podcast platform as well. Uh, check out the website. Uh, we have the merchandise there and everything Uh uh, Angel of Words related at AOWENT.com. Our sponsors are OTW Threads, Be Out of This World, and AttitudeOn10.com. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you later.